and we're live. Welcome back to the Michael Ellis Show. I'm your host, Michael Ellis, and today we've got Gordon Mullen on the show, and um, he's an expert in remote working for businesses and people um, in general. Uh, even before the times of COVID, so he's not a new player to the game. Let's be let's be let's be true here and be honest and say that he's, he's an experienced player in the game, and it's not just a rise of the COVID pandemic. So, no. how are you today, Gordon? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to see some uh, blue skies and sunshine today, as opposed to the grey and wet weather we've had over the last couple of days. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's nice. We've got blue skies here as well, so it's good. It's good. So, uh, do you want to give us a brief overview of your um, of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So my professional background is as a business analyst. I've been doing that for about the last 25 years. Uh, and unsurprisingly, I've worked with quite a lot of, of kind of remote distributed offshore teams in that time. Um, but uh, particularly over the last seven years, uh, I've been working with a, a much larger organization. And about four years ago, um, a particular team that I was working with, uh, essentially I've been brought in to sort out fundamentally communication and trust issues. And this is quite often the sort of stuff that I've been asked to, to fix. And, you know, there was the, the offshore team uh, out in uh, in Russia. Um, and then we had third party consultancy firm, we had the client, we had me on site. And the delivery manager I was working with at the time sort of started to comment on just how fast I was able to, to turn this, this kind of trust and communication issue around. And it really set me thinking about the mechanics of actually building relationships and rapport remotely, which is why I call what I do effective remote relationships. And that turned into coaching my colleagues initially, coaching our corporate clients, and then expanded beyond there into helping people kind of out in the wider world how to do this. And as you quite rightly said, been doing this for a number of years prior to, to all the pandemic. Um, obviously when that, that hit earlier on this year, Everybody was thrust into doing this this kind of work from home experiment, um, and lots of people were suddenly looking for help on how they could actually do this. Um, and that turned into me sort of helping out in a number of different ways with people. So some was helping people do what they were already doing, but online. So one example being a friend of ours who was a private chef that obviously could no longer go into people's houses and cook meals for them. So helping her with sort of kit setup, giving us some kind of ideas around the business side of things as well. She's now shifted to, to uh, teaching cooking classes online, essentially. Uh, somebody else who had been a professional or is a professional musician, um, but also has a really interesting life story, including um, uh, competing for the UK whitewater rafting team. Um, and to look at, and perhaps not the first person you would think be doing something like that. So I said, Actually, I think you make a great sort of public speaker, motivational speaker, maybe a book. And she's actually now working on a book. Um, and then the third aspect being people who were running events. So things like networking events and particularly on the property side of things, which is my wife and I do some property investment and development. They just wanted somebody that could kind of manage the tech stuff, do the facilitation, you know, run breakout rooms, just keep people involved and engaged and make it feel like an enjoyable experience rather than just, you know, listening to somebody drone on over a set of slides for an hour. Um, so, yeah, mixture of all of that sort of facilitation and helping. And now focusing particularly on people that are public speakers. So perhaps people like yourself, you know, that they need to do speaking or training or stuff like that online because it's something I enjoy doing personally and how you can actually make that feel like a, a proper connection with your audience, even actually see your audience whilst you're doing it. So that's kind of how we've, we've got to where I am. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, so how long have you actually been in this industry? Uh, how long have you been doing, um, working with businesses on remote working? I would say probably about three to four years uh, I've been doing this. So, I mean, I've been kind of doing the whole remote work stuff for a lot longer than that. But in terms of it being sort of an active thing that I've been running kind of coaching and training sessions are, I would say somewhere between three to four years. And what was it like? So you've been doing it a lot longer than that, uh, personally yourself. What was it like back then when you was doing it for yourself, when you first got into remote working? environments 
Oh, um, I mean, bearing in mind I've been working with, with remote teams for, for decades, really. Um, yeah, I mean, the usual thing, is, as most people's experience will be, you know, trying to talk to usually an Indian offshore team, sat in a conference room with a spider phone in the middle of the desk, um, and it's just almost unworkable, to be perfectly honest, in terms of the kind of, if I compare that to the level of communication and, and collaboration that we have now, um, it was just really, I mean, essentially it was, you know, sort of kind of write down what you want, throw it over the wall. You might have a conference call to maybe answer some questions and then it would disappear into the uh, um, the kind of the, the, the black hole and, and reappear a few months later and go, mm, no, it wasn't really quite what I meant. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just very much kind of one way that kind of the what a lot of people I think still have a view of in terms of, of outsourcing. You know, you kind of say what you want, you give it to somebody and they go do. Um as, as we realize now, obviously, if you want the best results, then you need to be collaborating a lot more closely than that. Yeah, yeah. And so when did you start seeing the shift of when it could be really effective for people to um, up the games in connection through remote working? I think probably the... Uh, if I go back to back 2014 um, was probably when I really saw it start to shift. And I'll give you a very specific example, actually, was was one of the corporate clients that I was working with. Um, the uh, client we were working with had sort of shifted over to using all the Google suite of products, you know, Google Hangouts and all of that, obviously now Google Meet. And the team I was working with were based out on uh, one of the, the warehouses out on an industrial estate in Northampton. Um, and that we wanted to run the video calls to be able to actually talk you know, face to face when we couldn't physically be in the same room because I was normally in the head office. Then there was the team out at the industrial estate and then there was the actual the delivery team, the development team, um, at, you know, in Eastern Europe. And just that shift to doing video and actually having the bandwidth and the tools like hang your Google Hangouts to be able to actually do real-time video calls with a group of people just shifted things hugely. You know, we are a social species. You know, we talk about, you know, wanting to get face-to-face -face with somebody. And that really was where I saw the, the shift in the power of being able to do that. And as we've seen the rollout of, you know, better and better bandwidth, better and better tools, you know, Zoom being a and the one most people know, that really to me is what makes the difference is that ability to, you know, see the person that you're talking to. You know, if you're going to know, like, and trust somebody, it's very difficult to know, like, and trust somebody that you can't see. Yeah, true, <laughs> very, <laughs> very true. And and so, um, what what prompted you to go out into this space about three to five years ago? and actually start developing your own programs around it? Well, as I said, it came from that delivery manager that I was working with, a very, very lovely South African guy that I was working with, um, who's just sort of very, very straightforward. And that was really what made me stop and think about the things I'd learned how to do. Now, one thing I do is worth making clear, and it's why actually the way I teach it makes sense, is... Um, I suspect, although I've not been diagnosed, I sit somewhere on the autistic spectrum. So in terms of building relationships with people and reading emotion and all of that sort of stuff, it has been, should we say, more of a conscious learning process that I've had to go through. And in terms of what behaviors and things can you do to actually build that feeling of rapport and build that feeling of trust and make sure that you are um, paying attention to the cues that you're getting, but also the psychological effects that behaviors have on, on how you feel about things. Um, and so that, that really was where it started. So as they grew out into initially, so well, let's try this out with some colleagues. Yes, they, they really like it. Corporate clients, yes, they really like it. I'm getting asked to do uh, multiple sessions of these. Actually, this is a really valuable skill for anybody that wants to work remotely or just work with somebody that's not in the same room. Um, and it applies to so many things, you know, I'd say even prior to pandemic, um, it, you know, my family live in New Zealand and, and you know, my sister emigrated, what, 16 years ago. My parents emigrated 
uh, back in 2013. Um, so if I want to maintain a relationship with my family, it's done through a camera. You know, I get to see them maybe every couple of years, actually physically in person. Um, so, yeah, that was that was where it came from. Um, and every time I do it, people go, oh, God, I hadn't thought about that. So hence sharing the message and, you know, when when the pandemic hit, then setting up the YouTube channel um, and putting some of the content out onto there as well. Great, great. And how much is there to learn in regards to remote remote working? Like, there must be a lot to work, learn if if yeah. if you if you can actually specialize in this area and deliver a program that's suitable for uh, corporate and clients of any nature, then there yeah. must be a lot of things that a lot of people miss out. There is, I think, to me, it kind of splits into two aspects. Um, the stuff that's, that's really quick to fix, and it's the stuff that I, I started with the teaching with, um, are the, what I kind of class as the hygiene factors, you know, so stuff like audio, because, and, and again, people kind of go, yeah, 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 we, we kind of know you need good audio, but do you, you know, do people really stop and understand why? So if you are going to talk to somebody and every time you talk to them, it physically hurts listening to them. That is not the kind of psychological association you want people making with you. So you can have the crispest you know, HD audio, but if there's loads of background noise coming through or it's tinny or echoey or there's feedback or anything like that, people stop wanting to talk to you. And it, it, it's, it sounds unprofessional to do that. So fix your audio. then. If you are going to build a relationship with somebody, turn your camera on, actually have a face to face conversation with them. But always remember, and this is the bit that until we get to gaze correction or sort of full kind of the hollow deck, essentially, there's no getting around the fact that it feels slightly unnatural when you first do it. The more you do it, you, the more practiced you become at it. But remember that the eyes of the person that you're talking to is the lens of the camera and not their picture on the screen. Because the number of people that, that do an entire video call looking kind of where I'm looking now. And when I stop and ask people and I say, if somebody did this to you in real life, what would what would your impression be of their personality? And I'd, I mean, I'll ask you that question. You know, what would you say if somebody was talking to you in real life and just looked here the whole time? What would you say about them? In, in real life, I would in be um, I'd, I'd be confused. I'd be like. Well, why is he not looking at my face? Why is it? Why is he? Why is he? I've, I've, you, you would instantly think there's something wrong with your face for a start. Okay. What else? What, what might? Uh, what other story might you tell yourself about why they're not looking you in the eye in real life? They're not interested. They're not interested in me. They're not interested in the conversation. They're, they're not listening. There's there's loads of things that go through your mind in real life yeah. with somebody not looking and directly at you yeah the usual answers i get are they're not interested they're shy um they're unconfident they're they have something to hide you know uh the, the none of the associations i ever get are positive you know when somebody's looking that up and what i would also say as well is if you ask a woman and you say what would it feel like? they kind of go mm, yeah it kind of feels like they're looking down here um, and you have had millions of years worth of evolution talking to people in real life. That evolutionary wiring and associations does not go away just because you're on a video call. So consciously, you know it's a video call and you kind of understand why they're doing it. But all your life, all your training that you've had, all the evolution that sits behind it tells you, makes those associations. And that's very difficult to break. And you get the same thing if people are looking over the top of you. Um, again, I, I tend to say, you know, imagine somebody doing to the, this to you at a networking event. It's like, well, they're being domineering. They're looking down on me. They're not interested. They're trying to find somebody more interesting to talk to. Again, all negative associations. So that's kind of the hygiene factor side of things. Sort of, sort of sorting all of that out, get your lighting. I mean, as you can see here, I've actually got a green screen behind me. Normally, I would have a virtual background running as well. Um, you don't have to do that. That's not essential. Um, but I find it helps for me normally with branding. But when you dig deeper than that, there is around how do you actually build a relationship with people? How do you do the things that kind of happen by accident when you're in the same physical space? 
you know, so again, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Uh, bear in mind, you know, if you're talking in a corporate environment, I would say to people, you know, if you're sat next to somebody, you've been working next to them all day, it's Friday afternoon, you're packing up to go home. What would you say to each other? What's the kind of question you might ask? Oh, what are you doing at the weekend? Yeah, exactly. Just a simple question, something that we happen to ask because we're sat next to them. You know, or in a, or in a Monday morning, you, you, you're unpacking, sort of getting ready for work. It'd be a, how was your weekend? You get up to anything interesting? You know, if you know a bit more about them, you know, how was the kids? Did the match go all right? Whatever it is. Those are things that happen accidentally because you're physically in the same space. If you're not in the same room, you have to make time to do those, not have those non-work conversations. And there's lots and lots of ways you can do that that I talk about. But building those relationships, because regardless of what you're doing, whether it's working for a company or working as an entrepreneur, doing sales, doing public speaking, whatever it happens to be, it's about building a relationship with the person that you're talking to. That's what everything else is based on. And then aside from the relationship side, the simple mechanics of how do you do a training with you know, uh, group activities and breakouts. How do you keep people engaged? How long do you run training sessions for? You know, because if you ask somebody to sit on a training session all day, you know, sat in front of a computer, that's very tiring. There's better ways of doing it. What tools can you use to achieve, you know, to do effective brainstorming? You know, how do you do like the flipped classroom model, you know, of actually making sure that the synchronous time that you have together, this kind of conversation you and I are having now, how do you make that really valuable? Because again, what we still see far, far too many organizations doing is just defaulting to people being on Zoom calls all day long and not actually having time to do the work that they're being paid for because their managers or whoever don't know a better way of actually keeping in touch with, with what progress is. There's a very, very strong movement now towards we should be defaulting to asynchronous communication. So asynchronous being like, I send you a message and you reply when you've got time. Um, but thinking about I, how do you actually do that? I would agree on that um, aspect in terms of um, sending a message to somebody and, and leaving it until they've got time to reply obviously if it's something that's of urgency you pick up the phone don't you? or you call but if it's something that can be left and you don't need a response straight away messaging seems to be the better way so then you don't interrupt the workflow of the other person yeah um, absolutely and it, it has some really powerful knock-on effects and knock-on benefits, if you like, from that as well, which is that when you free people up from having to be sort of real-time synchronous for everything and, and kind of fixed office hours, suddenly you don't need to worry about whether they're in the same time zone as you or how much overlap you've got. I mean, I would say try and you know have some real-time synchronous elements. You know, again, it's back to the relationship piece. But for a lot of what we do, you don't need that. So suddenly you've got a global talent pool. Even outside the time zone aspect, you suddenly means that people who have other things going on in their lives, which make sort of doing real time synchronous, you know, sort of nine to five or whatever, not practical. So people with caring requirements, you know, I mean, again, I've, I've got this situation at the moment. Um, my younger son is going to uh, an outreach school. It's not, there's no public transport or school transport to take him there. So me and my ex-wife have to share taking him or picking him up. I work that around my work day because I can can do my schedule and I'm, I can move my work to fit around the other things that I need to do in my life. So it, it, it gives so much more flexibility and people really value that flexibility. So you suddenly get people that actually will perhaps come and, and work with you or work with your organization that you just would not have been able to, to use if you insist on real-time synchronous. Agreed, agreed. Um, it's half the reason why I don't have a set time for these lives. Uh, I let the guests choose the time that they want to come on these lives because that opens me up to a global audience, a global guest pool. It doesn't restrict me down to um, it doesn't restrict me down to only certain time zones where it fits into their day. Mm -hmm. And 
otherwise I'd be I'd be extremely restricted, massively restricted. If I just left it to um, a certain time every day, then it'd be it'd be ridiculous for some people. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it's the same with remote teams, right? It allows you to open up, uh, open up massively, doesn't it? Yeah. To the, to, to the whole world, being able yeah. to be flexible over your messaging and over just simple stuff, really. Just that is just simple stuff. Yeah. Um. That I think corporations, CEOs, business owners have a hard time adjusting to that way of thinking. Why do you think that is, though? Because they've not had to is the short answer. You know, the, there's when you're not when you don't have to do it, when you can kind of sort of insist on having it the way that you're comfortable with kind of your comfort zone, then there's not really any great incentive to to do something else. Um, but when you get a situation like the pandemic and you're forced into it and what has been really very interesting to watch and, and hear people talking about is the number of people who've said, look, I've been asking for flexible working for years. And my boss, my company, whatever, have said, no, you can't do it. No, it's not possible. And all the rest of it. And then into pandemic, suddenly everybody's forced into it and their bosses have gone, uh, well, we can't just stop. So we, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, some figured it out better than others. Um, but actually then realized that for the vast majority, people not only carried on working were as productive, but quite often more productive than they had been when they were in an office. Um, and don't get me wrong, there are there are downsides to social isolation. Social isolation. Oh, social isolation. I'll try and slow my mouth down to keep up with my brain. Um, social isolation, the mental health aspects, challenges of having kids in the house whilst you're trying to work, not having dedicated workspaces. There are issues that need to be solved but the fundamental thing of actually there's a lot more people can work remotely and distributed than were ever allowed to previously and now it's flipped on its head and people have gone so why why do i have to come back into the office again what exactly is the benefit you know and the majority of people are looking for you know, the vast majority are looking for at least kind of one to two days working from home so you get this sort of three, three, two, two, you know, kind of three days in the office, two days at home, two day weekend. That that sort of kind of hits the sweet spot for a lot of people. Some people like me, very happy working remote pretty much 100 percent of the time. I'm perfectly happy to go and do you know a business trip or go and, and travel for a particular event or a kickoff or something like that. But doing as I was doing a four and a half hour commute every day just to go and sit at a desk and talk to people who aren't in the same office anyway, seems a bit pointless. And to be clear, that was one of our clients more that was insisting on that rather than uh, our organization. Um, but we're seeing this and people are going, well, give me a reason to come back in the office. And also I, I want to feel safe when I come back into the office. You know, is it actually a physically safe environment? Um, and this, this shift we'll see, we will see a move back towards people coming back together for work, but making sure they're actually getting benefit out of it. And it ties back to that, that kind of synchronous point I was making a few minutes ago. You come back together into an office to collaborate, to spend time together, to build relationships. You know, it's not just simply, you know, work is a thing you do, not a place you go. So do your work at the place where that work gets done best. And for a lot of people, for some of the stuff they do, that's at home or in a coffee shop or sitting in a sitting in a beach hut in Bali. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who's rented or bought a villa in Bali specifically for remote worker sort of Airbnb setup. Because for some people being able to do that and just work the place where you feel your best. That's amazing. That is amazing. So. You briefly touched on it there, but um, when when this is all over, when this global pandemic's all over, how how do you think uh, the people that were hung up about remote working before will default back to that and want people to come back in and try to force them to come back in? Um, 
full time, or do or do you think it's it? Or do you think it's opened up a revelation in people now and that this is possible? Uh, to to remote working is possible, and they might see the benefits. Which one? Which one do you think is going to win? I don't think it's an either role. It is going to be. It is going to be a mix. Um, and unfortunately, like a lot of these questions, the answer is sort of it depends. Um, I think there are a significant portion of people who've been resistant to it previously, who've had their eyes open very much. They've had that revelation that God, actually, this is possible. Um, and in some cases, not only is it possible, but actually, it works better than what we were doing previously. Um, so the, there will definitely be some of those. And we've seen this. I mean, it is particularly the tech companies that we're here about, but they're not the only ones doing it. Um, so the likes of Unilever, for example, would be another example. And um, one of the things that Unilever have done as a result out of this in New Zealand is they've moved to a four day week. You know, people getting paid the same amount, but only for working four days a week because they've realized actually people wow. are more productive. Because most of us, that's pretty much all of us, I would dare to say, um, do not work solid for eight hours a day, you know, because you, you can't, your, your brain can't be full on eight hours a day. So yeah. if you can allow people that more flexibility, that, that works. So there'll definitely be those that have had the revelation. There will be some who, like I said, there are tangible benefits to getting people together a few days a week or a few days a month and doing it that way. But unfortunately, yes, there will be some who are stuck in their ways, who have, who've kind of just really not believed in the whole thing. It's like, well, we've got people working from home, but I'm going to have them on Zoom calls, you know, sort of eight hours a day. You know, if I can't see them, I can't manage them. Um, who will insist on on people coming back into the office? I think they are going to struggle in a lot of cases because the response from a lot of uh, sort of people is going to be, but you know, this you know why this has been working all right, not as well as it could, but. You know, if you're going to insist I come back into the office and I don't want to, I'm going to go and look for an employer that's a bit more enlightened and actually allows me to do at least a couple of days a week from home. I think companies that insist on it are going to see their best people leave. You know, unfortunately, you know, the, the ones that, that your, your top tier employees, if you do that to them, they are going to leave. They are going to go and work for somebody else. And you will be left with the people that, um, you know, don't sit in that top tier that that, that don't that aren't um, uh, as appealing to another employer. You know, so it, it, I think it's going to yeah. self-correct to a large extent. Yeah, I believe so too. Um, so you're massive. Uh, you're a massive fan of technology. You're a massive fan of where things are going in the world and keeping up to the times of new technologies, especially AI technologies and advancements in te technologies. Yeah. Where did that love for technology come from? <laughs> Funny enough, I, I did a, um, a half hour talk at our global software conference back in December last year. And if you look for the Disruptive Decade YouTube channel, you'll find the talk on there. Um, but essentially what it was, was I, I grew up loving sci-fi, you know, really from kind of learning how to read. That was some of the earliest stuff that I did. And as, as I said in that talk, I fell in love with you know, kind of Isaac Asimov and Heinle and sort of all the classics. Um, so I grew up, you know, with the likes of Neil Asher and Gridlink, you know, sort of the AI org behind the ear and sort of, you know, brain to internet connection and all the rest of it. So I love tomorrow's world and just gadgets and tech. So that that's something that's just really from early childhood has been something that's of interest to me. Um, and then obviously I've, I've kind of ended up in in the IT world, although a rather circuitous route. I did a law degree at university, so I'm not a sort of uh, an out and out sort of geek programmer background. Um, but just tech and, and what it enables, uh, I think, and the possibilities that it opens up for humanity as a species um, has been something that's been with me for as long as I can remember. That's fantastic. So what, what are some of the things that you see coming up in the, in the very near future and then further down the future that we could see possibly happening in the tech world? Oh, this is I mean, this is such a huge subject. And I think when we talk about timescales, just so people are 
sort of get a sense of how rapidly this is coming. The stuff I'm going to talk about, we are talking about the next 10 to 15 years. I'm not talking about 50 years down the road. I'm talking about no more than 15. Um, we There are so many exponential converging trends that are going to really upend everything that we know um, about work, about life, about you know how we we interact as a species you know what planet we live on as a species you know so ai you mentioned absolutely you know ai machine learning um just to give you an example of sort of the real world implications of some of this stuff and there's lots of examples but this is a fairly recent one some people will have, have heard about and i'm mentioning in the, the talk i did of AlphaGo, which was deep mind so part of google deep minds uh ai that beat the European champion at the game of Go, which is sort of flipping black and white uh, pieces. Something that up un literally up until the day it happened, even experts in the field thought was decades away. That then went to beating the world champion, uh, but that was all based off learning from human games. Then it learned how to play itself, just given the rules of the game. Um, and that has now developed it and using that same kind of technology. The most recent thing is a thing called AlphaFold. Now, in the sort of medical and, and uh, genomics type space, predicting how a particular chain of amino acids folds up into a protein is a really difficult thing to guess at. And there's been a competition running since 1994, every couple of years, to see if they could sort of programmatically or, or sort of compute how a particular protein would fold. And for for years and years and years, it was kind of stuck at, I think, about 30% accuracy. 2018, that jumped to about 60% with DeepMind's AlphaFold. This year, or last year, sorry, 2020, that jumped massively up to about 90% accurate. That means that uh, there was a German university research team for one particular protein had been trying to figure out how it would fold for over a decade. AlphaFold solved that problem in 30 minutes. You are taking something that, because the shape of the protein determines its, its function, essentially. So if you're talking about drug discovery or you know, any, your sort of treatments for diseases and things like that, having something that can figure out how a protein is going to fold, that instead of taking decades, takes minutes, that instead of costing hundreds of thousands or millions to figure out, costs pennies, that massively accelerates the medical space and that you know that's ai we're seeing it eating into things that have historically been very highly paid white collar jobs so think about people like radiographers radiologists you know, interpreting ct scans and things like that now i'm not saying that initially ai is going to replace them completely but if your job involves pattern spotting essentially then that is going to fall to ai and we're going to see more and more of that but ai kind of influences pretty much everything, you know, self-driving, drug discovery, you know, um, treatments, um, automation of, of work and tasks, so many things that it influences. But we're gonna see, if you want to talk about broader trends, a shift towards decentralization. So something the pandemic has made very, very clear is that having just-in-time global supply chains, although they've brought a huge amount of benefits, are actually quite fragile. When you suddenly have to shut your borders because of something like a pandemic, suddenly your global supply chain falls apart. The just-in-time is not just-in-time. It doesn't turn up. So when you have you know, clean renewable energy generation that can be done on your rooftop, when you have technologies like precision fermentation, and again, this isn't new, and again, go and have a look at the talk for a bit more detail, but you, where you can use essentially the technology used for brewing beer to produce any organic molecule then and things like 3D printing for assembling that into materials, then suddenly if you can generate energy, food and materials on a local basis, and I'm talking about regional or even sort of city-based, if you've got things like vertical farming, um, if you've got stuff like uh, cell-based uh, meat, so basically growing your meat rather than, you know, raising an animal and killing it and chopping it up to get the meat out of it. All of these things are going to shift us back to a much more decentralized, local, much more resilient and robust model. You're going to have huge amounts of near zero marginal cost energy. That opens up huge possibilities. 
So if you're talking about climate change, um, obviously generating your energy cleanly without creating emissions, excellent. Being able to have things like uh, electric vehicles so that you can do your transport without creating emissions, excellent. But even if we dropped our emissions to zero today, we still need to pull some of the carbon out of the atmosphere that's already there. When you have near zero marginal cost energy, the, doing that actually becomes economically viable. So we have, over the next 10 to 15 years, the ability to solve poverty, to stop and reverse climate change. Okay, There's a, an excellent report that I refer to, and I take quite a bit of the materials from in the talk, called Rethinking Humanity by a, a think tank called Rethink X. The guys there have got a fantastic track, track record in predicting disruption. And Tony Zaber from Rethink X says that by 2030, um, you'll be able to have the American dream. So the American dream they class as a thousand miles a month of transport, 2000 kilowatt hours of energy, 100 clean liters of water a day, all your food, communications, um, basically everything that you need to survive as a human being for every human being on earth could be done for $250 a month. That is the level of disruption that is that is not just possible, but highly likely over the next 10 to 15 years. And by 2035, he reckons that comes down to $125 a month. So when we talk about things like universal basic income, what do we do when the, you know, the robots take our jobs? Um, dramatizing and it, it's not that straightforward but you know what do we do to all these people whose jobs are getting disrupted all of the that you know we need people to be able to live and, we're, and again we're seeing this with a pandemic people are going actually we should be giving people a certain amount of months so they can actually live and exist and don't you know uh, you know not be able to put food on the table it's oh it's unaffordable with all these technological disruptions that are coming suddenly it does become affordable this becomes a choice so, yeah, the, you know, we're going to see, you know, autonomous vehicles, again, massive upending to the way that we get about and also to the finances of a lot of people. You know, you're talking about something that is a fraction of the cost of running a vehicle you already own, never mind comparing it to buying a new vehicle. You know, dropping the marginal cost of transport to the point that in the same way that uh, bandwidth went from being very expensive. I mean, if, if you're old enough, you may remember the days of dial-up or having to pay for international phone calls. You know, it came down to being something that, you know, Starbucks will give you for free when you're in for a coffee. The same thing will happen to transport. When you've got autonomous vehicles, suddenly Starbucks isn't a restaurant, you know, a, a coffee shop that you go to. It's a coffee shop that's doing kind of laps around the city and you hop on and they pay to drive you to wherever you're going as long as you buy a coffee from them. It, it it just shifts everything. It's, there's there's so much more, but I'll, I'll stop because I know I'd, I'd, that's, I'll that, keep going. No, no. That's an amazing concept that you just put across there. More about coffee shops that fly you around the city. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing concept. Um, just to pick one tiny little aspect that you mentioned in the whole of the, the whole of that lovely speech that you just did there um do you really think we could end poverty we will have the capability to and that's kind of a really key point about this is that uh, and and again this this is a, a lot of this is coming from uh, sort of the rethinking humanity report and i really would encourage everybody listening to this to go and download that and read that because there's huge amounts of detail in it um but yes I, I mean we will have incumbents you know we will have vested interests that want to hang on to power that want to hang on to the way that things have been um and how painful this transition is very much depends on how much we can uh, sort of negate the effect of those vested interests and the people trying to hold stuff back. So, again, seeing, you know, getting rid of Trump and, and sort of ridiculous things like bring back coal jobs and stuff like that, you know, being able to shift to administrations and governments that support the transition to what we need will be will be really important. But if you look at what happened with televisions, 
for one example, you know, when flat screen TVs dropped to a point, you know, where they became affordable, people just stopped buying CRT TVs. When the smartphone was launched in 2007, April of 2007, first iPhone, and the response, you know, from Steve Ballmer of Microsoft was, there's no way the iPhone's going to get any significant market share. No chance. That was his words. You know, look where we are 13 years later. We're at the point where half the nearly half the planet has a smartphone. How many people do you know that have a phone that's not a smartphone? You know, and these these are just small examples. But when you get stuff that is sufficiently disruptive, it doesn't matter how much the incumbents try and hang on to it. The blockbusters of this world, the Kodaks of this world, the Nokias of this world, it doesn't matter how much they try to hang on to it. They are dead in the water. Same goes for a lot of the legacy auto manufacturers. The vast majority of legacy auto manufacturers are either going to shrink, merge or go out of business in the next 10 years. Because by the time we hit 2030, like the ban that we've got in the UK, that they've said, you know, you're going to ban the sale of all new combustion engine vehicles by 2030. It will all be over by 2030, essentially. In fact, it's all essentially going to be over probably by 2025. Because if you are looking to buy a new combustion engine vehicle and you're looking at an electric vehicle, and again, I'm... This is sort of on the individually owned, kind of putting aside the whole autonomous side of things for a second. But if you're saying, well, I can buy one of two cars, I can either buy one, which by that point will be cheaper to buy, is massively cheaper to run, is more reliable and can drive itself when I want it to, versus something that is polluting, that costs more, that's going to have basically no residual value by the time I come to sell it. I'm, I'm not going to buy a combustion engine vehicle. It makes no sense. And, and if you look at the way that most people buy new vehicles, personal contract plans, how much you pay per month for your vehicle on a PCP is largely predicated on how much that vehicle is going to be worth in two to three years time. When that vehicle is going to be worth next to nothing in two to three years time, because nobody's going to want to buy it, suddenly your PCP costs go through the roof. Now, there will still be a market for secondhand combustion engine vehicles for longer than there will be for new vehicles. But again, as autonomous comes along and suddenly it's cheaper to just effectively hail a robotic Uber when you need it, rather than operate a vehicle and insure and tax and repair and, and everything else, a vehicle you already own, they're just going to get abandoned. Now, there are use cases where it will take longer for that to happen. But the disruption will happen for a lot more people, a lot faster than people expect. Again, going back to one of Tony Zaber's predictions, he predicts, and again, he's, he's focusing mostly on the US, but he says in the US, and again, bearing in mind how geographically spread that country is, 95% of passenger miles will be in autonomous EVs by 2030. So 95% of every passenger mile will be in an autonomous vehicle. That, that's the kind of speed of disruption that we're talking about. People cannot wrap their heads around exponential growth. You know, the, we've been brought up as, as human beings. And again, it goes back to this thing about millions of years worth of evolution. We are used to very slow linear growth. Even though we've had the explosion of the Internet, smartphones, all of that sort of stuff. When you ask people to predict what's going to happen, they tend to take the current year, either what's happened in the last few years or what's happening sort of rate of progress at the minute and just draw a straight line from it. But that's not how disruption works. It, it goes exponential and it happens time and time and time and time again. If you look at the cost declines, rights law, you know, for every cumulative doubling of production of anything, you know, lots of things, um, there's a certain percentage decline in cost. And this is, you know, what, what the percentage number is varies, but that relationship between a cumulative doubling, so how many have been produced since the, the beginning of time, um, results in a, in a predictable decline in costs. And you can do that with batteries, and it's being done with TVs and smartphones, and even, you know, the combustion engine vehicle. If you draw a line and you look at it, it's the same line. So when they're making predictions about this, this is based on stuff that has been proven time and time and time again. But the majority of the population are going, no, nah, that's never going to happen. We don't have autonomous vehicles. Batteries will never be that cheap. You know, 
it's coming when you look into this you just kind of go and then you start adding up well hang on a minute if that and that and that and that and you add them together and you go oh shit <laughs> the world just changes it opens up possibilities we simply have not had before on a different note completely away from technology so last year the uk or england i can't remember which one it was uk or england saw its first decrease in population due to less um due to less births than deaths uh, do you think that's a trend that's going to continue to happen or do you think that's it's just going to uh, take back off again and exponential growth of population is going to happen again yes we are Popula population decline is going to be a serious problem over the course of this century um and we're, we're seeing i mean if you look at the likes of japan for example um i think the prediction is they will have lost half their population by 2100 now the, the there's a number of reasons for this and again it varies depending on country so for example uh, kenya is going to become the most populous one of the most populous nations on earth um because we will see so the we will continue to see growth in population sort of overall for a while but then it will start to come back down because what tends to happen is that as countries get more developed and more educated and better contraception and all of the rest of it the birth rate comes down so the more prosperous the nation becomes the lower the birth rate goes uh, massively simplifying but that, that's generally what happens um, so as you suddenly bring you know energy and food and materials production you can do it all local and you don't need to rely on the the goodwill or a trade relationship necessarily with a country and you've got internet access and and access to education you know when you can give a laptop and you could you've got something like starlink you know and you've got internet access in the most inaccessible places on earth it's going to lift the whole of humanity up and give them access to all of this stuff which then again massively simplifying but will result in a lower birth rate so yes we are going to see ultimately that that population level off and then i think there Do you think that's um, do you think that's good for the uh, for the world? Do you think that's good for the economy? Do you think that's good for the okay. human race? There's, there's there's a couple of different aspects to that. So, from a planetary sort of standpoint, you know, is it better to have less demand on natural resources? Yes, I'd sort of give a simple answer for that one. Um, is it better for the economy? Now, this is where you get into something that I, I'm, uh, how can I put this sort of, I was gonna say less sure of my ground, I guess. It, it's not something that's my, my area of expertise, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, a lot of sort of the humanity has been driven around growth, 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 and almost to the extent of just creating stuff almost for the sake of creating it so people can buy it. And we need to get out of that model is, is my view on it. Um, so again, going back to what I said about that, we can actually provide what people need for, well, we'll have the capability of doing it for $250 a month, shifting to a model where actually your fundamental needs and everything you need to, to live a dignified and, and you know reasonably comfortable life actually can be provided as a baseline, as a floor. And where you are, for example, taxing uh, sort of robotics and AI in the same way you would tax an employee, that then means the, the things that humans are doing are things that they either want to do that they enjoy doing um, for example you're doing you know caring responsibilities and we've seen again this in the pandemic where people that have been sort of vital but have been very low paid have suddenly become celebrated and actually they're the, the you know key workers they're actually the really important people because they're doing the human stuff so same goes for the creative side of things as well the things that are uniquely human will be the things that become valuable. So if you talk about food production, and again, you know, my youngest son's interested in, in being a baker. So your you know, eating for fuel will be done by robots, it'll be automated and it will be cheap. But there will be a market for the artisanal 
human created speciality created with love stuff and that is what will become valuable and i think we get sort of breaking that relationship between income and work in in the way that we've always understood it um i think will be will be vital and as the as the population starts to decline we've got less people to do it we will rely more on the automation to do the stuff that's routine and kind of boring um uh, or dirty or dangerous or whatever and leave the work that is that again neatly closing the loop back to relationships all of the stuff that is about those human relationships will be where the value is and where we will see humans continue to to thrive and work um and and create and that that's my hope for for a future you know it's going to be a rocky path um to get us there but we have the potential to to radically change us and who knows what the model of civilization will look like when we have people you know living and working on mars for example which again we are quite likely to see the steps towards in the next 10 to 15 years seeing the first human on mars so this has been a very interesting chat it's been a lovely chat and guys if you um are interested in all this new technology all this new and where the planet's going in the next 10 to 15 years and you want to keep up to date with some of this stuff and i highly highly recommend you go check out gordon's youtube channel which is the the disruptive the decade disrupt, yeah the disruptive yeah. decade so and you'll find you'll find it also on on twitter and uh, there's a facebook group as well um so the videos will will come there's just the one on there at the moment uh, the, the channel's fairly new but you'll find lots of stuff particularly in the in the facebook group and twitter so yeah go search it up on twitter facebook or youtube whichever one is your choice of platform and um for anything else related to garden and effective working re relationships for remote teams or anything like that, um, head yourself over to michaelellisonline.com forward slash go forward slash garden. I will send you over to his Facebook profile where you can get in touch with him. He's got some links on there that head you over to his business page um, and website, I believe. can't remember. Um, but there's some links on there if you need to go find the other things that he does and and so on and so forth. It's been lovely chatting to you. I know you've got to go, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. Um, and it's been great. It, as always, it's been great hosting this show for you guys at home, and we'll see you on the next one. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Michael. Look forward to speaking to everybody else. Take care.